Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as I got the chance to speak with Joanne McEachin, and we have a great conversation about her life story, about education, about joy, about innovation, a whole bunch of really interesting topics, and I know you can enjoy it. If you do, then why not check out some of the other podcasts in the back catalog, because there's more than 360 of those. And also check out Seeds Impact Conference coming up on the 5th of October. You can find out a lot more information at seedsconference.nz. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that and other things that we discuss in this interview. Now let's get into this conversation with Joanne. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Joanne McEachin, who's the founder of The Learner First, which is a global consultancy company. Thanks for joining me. Tēnā koe, Stephen. Ko Joanne McEachin tuku ingoa, ko kaitahu te iwi. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. It's it's an honour to be here. I've heard you doing so many of these podcasts, and I've felt like it's a, a time for me to be here with you, and um, especially at this time of the year, and especially as I'm heading back overseas to live for a little bit of time, it's a, it's the right time to do it. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm looking forward to having some time with you today. Well, you've got a busy schedule, so I'm really glad that you were able to fit me in here <laughs> on this uh, to have a conversation. Because, um, yeah, I'm just really curious about um, your background and what's led you to do what you do today. So mm. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what we're going to go way back. There's a uh-huh. time machine over here. <laughs> what was life like when you were, say, five years old? Ooh, I probably wasn't much different than I am now. I was a very determined young little lady. And um, I do remember on my very first day of school, um, I remember uh, my mother coming to pick me up. And I made her walk home on the other side of the road. <laughs> and I marched down the road um, and I said, I'm a big schoolgirl now. I don't need any more help. I can do this all by myself. And that was a really interesting thing to say because I'm from a family of seven siblings and um, we're very, very connected as in, um, in those days we were very, very close. And I always worked as a, we always worked as a team. But for that moment in time, I knew I had to do something, step out on my own and say, I can do this. Mm. I can do this. And I think that's something that I've carried with me my whole life is that I work from a base of community, but I know that there's always some times in my life when I have to step out, be brave, stand tall, tutangata, and do things on my own. And my mother let me because she walked beside me and she just watched me every now and then, but she let me and she kept her eyes mostly to the front and let me walk by myself. So there's an encouraging there from her side as well, because mm-hmm. she could have said, no, no, hold my hand. Uh-huh. You're only five years old. Yep. She was She was an amazing, she was amazing. I, I, I credit a lot of what I do to her. She, um, she, was, she was a very spiritual woman and um, I think I was an incredibly lucky person to have her as my mother. She um, taught me um, so many things, and I think as a as a Maori woman, um, we grew up not knowing I was Maori, and but I always knew I was. And she, we we, um, you know, my my whakapapa comes through her, and I think that she taught us how to be Maori without telling us we were Maori because it, she wasn't allowed to be Maori when she was growing up because it was in those days when it wasn't okay, and um, but she taught me all the ways of being of being Māori. So I, I'm so grateful to her. And she used to talk about how she did a lot of the inner work and she taught me how to do the outer work that was on the outside of the world. And so she was my biggest cheerleader. 
So I'm, I'm so lucky to have had her in my life. Wow, that's mm. quite an endorsement. That's mm. an amazing story. Can you tell us a little bit more about her life? Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about your life as well, but I, <laughs> if I hear someone mention an influence on them, I'm always mm. curious to understand more. Mm. Do you know much about her early days? And um, She was one of seven children as well, and she was born in Invercargill, and so she's from the very, very south, and she used to talk a lot about her time in Riverton which is where our um, marae is. And I went down, recently down there to visit it, and I saw all of her ancestors up on the wall, where, uh, which was so interesting, at Tapuna. And she was very much attached to that area, and she used to swim in, swim in the water. She was, a, she, was a very, uh, she was a national, or she represented the South Island for swimming. Mm -hmm. She was a sports athlete. She played netball. Um, she was very physical, but she was exceedingly spiritual as well. Mm. And she was um, she was very she stayed at home a lot. She had seven kids, but then once once the last one was coming through, she then trained as an early childhood teacher. So my father was a principal. She was an early childhood teacher, and seven of us trained as five of us out of the seven trained as teachers. Wow! But she was she was the constant in our in our whanau. She was just she had this she had this calmness about her that was quite incredible and. Unbelievably, you, you, nobody will believe this when I say this about her, but she never yelled at us. We never, ha she never raised her voice at us, and I think to, to have me as her daughter was quite remarkable in the sense that she would give us a choice when she asked us to do something. So she knew how to manage people who were like me, and she would give us a choice and say, "These are the consequences, one way or another." But her voice didn't change. So she would say, "You have a choice. You can do the dishes now or later. When would you like to do them?" You can go to bed now or in 10 minutes. When, which, which one would you like to choose? Mm. So she always gave us those two, you know, always gave us options. Mm. Or when I was a rebelish teenager, she would say, well, if you do that, this will happen. And then I'd look at her and she'd say, well, it's your choice. <laughs> and so it was like, ah, she's got me again. I, you know, <laughs> the I logic to, of it. <laughs> the logic of it was so obvious yeah. that she, she just got me. But she, you know, she went to, to regular kind of church when she was younger, but then she realised that there was more to life than, than, than organised religion. And she taught me about Papatūvanuku, mm -hmm. she taught me about the land, she taught me about um, things that were slightly more esoteric than what um, I think regu regular religion would teach. And that's when I started to understand who I really was. Oh. And I think that was a gift that I will always be so grateful for. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I had to come home and spend time with her before she passed. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll get onto that in a couple minutes. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, you mentioned before in terms of Maori identity, mm -hmm. that that was something that wasn't acceptable when she was growing mm -hmm. up. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, being, being Naitahu and from the very south, we had very fair skin. And so I think um, her mother, who was slightly more Māori looking, um, she, she, was, she made it a, a very big deal not to be Māori. And um, so we weren't even told we were Māori, but I, it was something that, that, that we kind of innately knew. But um, she, she grew up not talking about it. Um, they didn't talk about it. They went to, you know, I think it was... Um, girls high school and just had a very Pākehā upbringing mm. um, but I think when you are Māori you know you are there's something about that that something about being Māori where you're connected to to the earth you're connected to you're connected to wai water you're connected to um, whenua land you're connected to um, a, a, a piece of spirituality that's inside you that's quite different and I think that that 
Um, my mother was very much like that, so I think she she um, she had no choice but to be that. Yeah. We don't have a choice. We're, we're our whakapapa is our whakapapa, and that's it. We, yeah. We we are who we are. So when did it become more a part of the conversation? Was it when you were getting older that you realized this, or mm. how did that happen? Um, well, we lived in um, Otatahi until I was about 10, and then we went to Paikakariki. Um, my, my father, you know, as he, as he got bigger schools, he moved north, mm. and um, it was probably, so after Paikakariki where we, we had a much more multicultural experience, and um, where we had um, different different iwi, and there was a connection, a different sort of connection there. But then it was when we went to Hamilton, and um, I noticed that there was a difference between where the Pakeha children were in high school and where the Māori children were. And I wasn't allowed to learn Māori. I was considered in the A stream, and I was too bright to to learn Māori. I had to learn French and. Um, and that was considered not okay. And it was like this this pain came in. It was a painful experience for me. And I just felt like there was, it was, we were being put down for learning Māori and Uttara Māori. And I just, there was something inside me that just, I knew there was something wrong with that. And it just, the, the, the piece of me that was, it was, it was like somebody was stabbing me. Mm. And I, it was at that point I went home to mum and I said, I'm Māori, aren't I? I was about 14. Wow. And she, she looked at me and she said, yes, you are. Huh. I said, why did you never tell me? And she said, I knew you'd figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was just an obvious thing for me to be. Hmm. And, um, and then after that, we started talking a little bit about it, but it still was never a big, it just, we, just, we, we just are. Hmm. And then slowly things started to become more obvious and um, it just became much more of a normal part of our life. But we never really connected with our... Um, iwi because we lived in the North Island. Right. And to be in Aitahu in the North Island is different to be in Aitahu in the South Island. Mm. It's a different experience. Yeah. Mm. And do you remember, like, this was clearly quite a, a moment in time when mm-hmm. you ask your mother this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she uh, says, yeah. and, and she says <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, in your own mind or the way that you were thinking about the world, what, what changed from that point? Or was it more just, oh, that confirms things that I already thought? I let go of my breath. Right. I went, there was a sense of, I know. I knew I always was, but it was like, finally, now I can be me. And there was a sense of, yes, right, mm. yep. There's a piece of me that was, was missing, now I know who I am. But then, you know, as life went on, I had to bury that again a little bit as I grew up because of different circumstances. But mm. in that moment in time, it was the releasing of a breath. Mm. It was the, sound that just came out and it was like I know Mm. an acceptance of myself it's really powerful and especially at that age because that you know early teenage years it's a hard time Mm. (laughs) just generally oh yeah but then to have that understanding would yeah yeah, it must have made quite a it was hugely impactful for me and it gave me a sense of of peace and comfort there's Mm. a couple of times in my life where um you know, those moments have happened, and it's always been to do with being Māori. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really, mm. yeah, it's really good to hear. I've interviewed a couple people who've been on a journey. Um, one of them was Dr. Jay Matenga, mm-hmm. and he he 
grew up not knowing either. Mm. Um, it, essentially, it was a, a split marriage, and mm. so his father was this person, and he, but he didn't know, mm. and he was only told much, much later, and he had a similar experience to you where mm. it then made complete sense yeah. why he felt connected to the river mm. when he would go swimming. Mm. And mm. Um, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes because it's kind of an echo of what you're yeah. talking about as well. Mm. So growing up, um, let's talk through in your teenage years, you know, we've kind of made it to there. So did you know what you enjoyed studying and, and where you might head after high school? Well, I um, I decided at about 15 that I was going to be an exchange student. And so um, being the very determined young lady that I am, I started to work three or four different jobs while I was at school to start to pay for it because we didn't come from a wealthy family and, and my father was a principal and we had seven kids. So we, we, they couldn't, my parents couldn't afford to send me as an exchange student, so I had to earn the, earn the money to do that. So I had three part-time jobs and then I ended up getting to save enough money to go. So at 16 I jumped on a plane by myself and went to San Francisco first and then went up to Seattle and ended up being an exchange student staying in Roseburg, Oregon. Mm. And I spent a year there, and I was never going to be a teacher, like my, because I was like rebel, no way, because everyone else in my family was a teacher, so right. I was sort of like, <laughs> I want to do something different, but I had no idea what it was going to be. But while I was an exchange student, um, I felt great joy at talking to kids, and because as an exchange student, you had to speak to different groups and and you know do speeches and things like that, and I had never really before had the opportunity to stand in front of a group of children. And I used to, I just loved it. I could feel this was my natural space. Mm. And it was the most hysterical feeling of, um, you know, when I got off the plane, when I got home and my dad said to me, so Jojo, what are you going to do now? What do, you, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I sort of turned my head to the side. I went, I'm going to be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed at me and he said, say that again. What are you going to do, Jojo? And I said, I'm going to be a teacher. <laughs> and he said, I knew you were. You, you were. you were born to be a teacher. That's who you are. And wow. if it's in your blood, it's in your blood too. So I had that from him. I had that from my mother. I had, I had no choice. Mm. And so I, I finished my high school and then went to teacher's college. And it was, you know, I still tried to get away from it. I took some time off when I was at Teachers College and um, went and lived in Australia and was a surfy chick and did the living Bondi Beach and you know surfed for a, about a year and then I kept looking at kids who were walking around the streets when it was school time and I'd be thinking, why aren't you in school? Come on kids, get back to school. Um, and so I knew that it was just, so I had to come back to university and carry on and, and did that and then it's just, I've never stopped. And your 15 year old self that had the jobs and was going to America, mm -hmm. what was it that had sparked that decision or that desire to, to go offshore? Um, I, met another ex I met an exchange student who came to New Zealand and um, we, we became friends and she said, why don't you do it? And it was like, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. And it was just like, I, you know, I realized that the world was bigger than me mm. and bigger than us in New Zealand. And it was, and I think that, that started my journey towards looking at a whole, a whole different way of being and what I learned at that point by going into another country and living with other families is that there are people all over the world who live in little pockets who don't know anything about each other in other little pockets around the world. So for me it was around how do we connect humanity together to be, to be one mm. because in my heart of hearts I believe that we all are one, that we are living on one planet we're living on Papatuanuku, and how do we connect together to to make sure we're looking after her and and ourselves? 
but there's so many isolated groups and they don't even know other people exist. Mm. And I, when I was in America, I realized that nobody knew New Zealand existed, <laughs> especially way back then, because I'm old now. But you know, when I was 15, 16, people didn't even, people didn't know where New Zealand was. Mm. You know, most often we were left off the map, and sometimes we still are. But it was really fascinating to sort of think about how, you know, that, that people don't know about each other. Mm. And so it, it just created this huge thirst in me to know about humanity. Mm, that's great. It, it's it resonates with something I see a lot of, which is people getting into silos of thought, yeah, yeah. and they end up talking with people who are just yes, like them. That's right. And they talk. They don't talk to those people, you know. And breaking down yeah. those barriers is something I've consciously tried to do by hosting lunches yes. and inviting many yep. people to come. Mm. And you'll be sitting. There's an accountant sitting next to an architect, sitting mm. next to a teacher, sitting yep. next to, and kind of the professional roles don't matter anymore it's a human sitting by a mm, human mm. and it's the similar kind of concept but what intrigues me is that at age 16 w there are two themes that i can see in your life one is the international focus mm -hmm. and two is education mm -hmm. and so we can trace it right back then mm -hmm. can't we like yeah. you can see the origins of what we're going to be talking about and yeah. what you've gone on to do yeah which i always love because it's a consistency about a life you yeah. know like this is yeah. who you were and then mm. look how it's changed and yeah. And morphed. I've never faltered from it. Mm. You know, once I started, that was it. It's just been, it's been a, it's been a journey and a passion of mine forever. Mm. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't stop. Mm. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. what form did it take then initially? Was it becoming a teacher yeah. in a high school or something um, like that? I started, or? I started off in an intermediate school in okay. Auckland, mm. and um, you know, I, I started off. You know, doing things that were quite. You know, I got into a, got into a school where I had an incredible mentor teacher who just taught me how to do things really differently, and she was brilliant. And um, I think you know, I think when you meet people along the journey who help you to do things differently than what the normal is, or what the norm is, then that makes a huge difference in your life. Mm -hmm. So I'm always on the lookout for people who who are creative, who are innovative, and who are willing to make change from the status quo when it's not working for everyone mm. and um, this particular teacher she was she was a I, I consider her a genius she's in her 80s now and she's still teaching wow um, so she was she was a huge influence on my life as a teacher and um, you know I did things like ask permission for changing the way we did things in the school and I was I was almost fearless in the sense that I knew it wasn't the right way to do things, so I didn't I didn't hold back, and because I was because I was lucky enough to get uh, to have the answer yes, I just kept going, mm. and so I did three years um, teaching in New Zealand, and then I went and lived in London, and um, that again I taught in a girls' high school over there, and. Um, this is, a, this is a kind of a funny story in the sense that I went for a job and it was, I thought it was head of department for PE. And I thought, yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm an athlete, I've, I've played sports, I've, you know, I was a rep netball player myself and I rode and I um, played basketball and I did all sorts of different sports because most Kiwis do. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh yeah, I can be a head of department for PE, that would be no problem. And I, <laughs> I was interviewed by the principal and she said, uh, well, you'll be teaching the sixth and seventh formers about social and moral education and the third, fourth, and fifth form is it'll be about the six major world religions and the the milestones that each religion has. <laughs> and so I looked at the principal and I said, well, how does that relate to PE? And she said, it's not PE, it's RE. 
And I said, what's RE? And she said, that's religious education. I said, well, I can't teach that. I've never been to, I haven't been to church or things like that. And she said, well, are you a teacher? And I said, yes. And she said, are you a good teacher? And I said, I'm a really good teacher. And she said, well, you can do this then. And so that was a, the beginning of recognising that, um, you know, it's, it's the connections you have with kids that make the biggest difference. And so I learned how to teach a subject I had no idea about. Um, but the joy I had in teaching these young women who, because it was a girls' high school, public girls' high school, who mostly were Muslim, who mostly uh, Muslim or Hindu, and I had never had any experience teaching um, girls from this particular background, and what a blast we had, <laughs> you know. And you know, for, for a long time they thought I was. The first three weeks were the hardest teaching I'd ever done, because they didn't trust me, and and I didn't understand why. And it wasn't until I asked, they got some of them got into trouble one day, and they asked, I they asked, I asked them what was their side of the story, and no teacher had ever asked them that before. Mm. And I understood the power of relationships, of listening to each other of being part of the same journey. And that made a big difference. And also understanding each other's religion and hearing the voices from every side of the fence, mm. all, all sides, mm. and understanding that we all have a viewpoint. And it's okay to have a viewpoint. We just have to come together to make a difference, to make change, to make our lives, you know, to make our lives okay for each other. And it does fit together. We can make it work. Mm. Being open to listen to the different perspectives is such a key, isn't it? It's huge. Can I come back to the first teacher that you mentioned, the one who's in her 80s now? First of all, can we give a shout-out to her? And secondly... Diane um, Chambers. Okay, Yeah. great. Love her. Mm. Yeah, mm. and the, the other thing that I'm wondering about is just it sounds like her attitude mm -hmm. encouraged you to innovate. And mm -hmm. what, what was it that was driving her? How did, how did that come through? How did it get displayed? She just had the belief that every child, you know, there was excellence. We didn't have to, we did not have to accept um, less than excellence. And that teaching was, teaching, was, um, teaching was about ensuring every kid got what they needed. And that we could do so with, with fun. I, and we joked that she was about excellence and I was about enjoyment. So between the two of us, we, sh we showed each other how to actually create this amazing way of teaching. Mm. So she knew how to get the very best out of children, and she was relentless until every child was successful. So she taught me that it's possible for every kid to be successful. Mm. I taught her to say, let's do that through with joyfulness. So it's not really tough on kids, and, but, it's, but you can do that with, 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 with heart. Mm. And so between the two of us, we were an, we were an amazing match. And um, but she just she just knew that every kid could be really successful. Her, she teaches writing now, and the pieces of writing that her children can create are to this day unbelievable. Mm. They write almost better than me, and I've written six books. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're they're, they're incredible. Mm. She's brilliant. She's a genius. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I always mm. love to hear about people like that mm. who then have influenced other people, mm. who then influence other mm. you know mm. catalysts. Oh yeah. Because someone like yeah. that. It potentially affects thousands yeah. and thousands of others. Oh, she's changed. Easily. She's changed lives everywhere. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So you're living in London. Mm -hmm. At that point, did your sense of identity as a as a New Zealander like? Mm -hmm. Did you feel like I I could stay here in in London? Like this could be my home? Or did you feel like at some point I'm going to be returning? How did that? Yeah, no, identity wise, I, I definitely was coming back to right. New Zealand. There was no there was no question. I wanted to do the combi van around Europe, so oh, yeah. I did that and. Um, 
lived in different places, but it was never there was never any desire to stay in Europe. It was not my home. It mm. was never any. I didn't really have a connection there. Um, I really loved travelling, mm. loved learning about the different cultures, but it wasn't it wasn't home for me, mm. and I didn't ever have a sense that I would live there. Um, I knew I would always return to America. That that definitely had a sense of home for me. Mm. And I think that was because of the the length of time that I lived there, went to school there, right. engaged in the culture there. So that felt much more comfortable to me. But I think um, uh, the you know living over in London was not my home. I, I enjoyed it. I had a great time there, but it was never home. Yeah, mm. it's always interesting to me the sense of home because as you know, I've lived in like six different countries around mm. the world, similar mm. to you. Um, lots of places that I go mm. but for me home is it's always been Otatahi Christchurch it's mm. where I despite my accent it's where I grew up and yeah. where I feel most at home mm. but um, yeah it's it's interesting when you go mm. offshore and then think about where you fit in this yeah. big world yeah it yeah. is yeah. yeah so what happened next um, so after that I came back to Aotearoa New Zealand and um, started teaching again in Auckland and stayed in Auckland until I um, became a principal there. And I was principal of, um, I went through, I was teacher at Titarangi Primary, then Glenedon, sorry, no, Titarangi Primary, then Kauri Lands Primary, and then I became an associate principal there, and then principal at um, Oranga Primary School. And then from there I um, ended up, that was when they started bringing strategic planning in for schools and they hadn't didn't, didn't do that before and of course I think that's when I started to realize I was very much into system thinking mm. and for schools that was the first time that they'd actually asked us to do that and I started thinking hmm that's when when you do something over here it has an effect over here and over here and over here and I started to really get excited about that and so I um um, started to do do a quite a quite a long a lot of work in that space, and I did some really interesting things at that school. I took all my staff to Samoa um, because we had a lot of um, Samoan students there, and none of my teachers were Samoan. Um, I did that probably before I was allowed to, or if, I don't know whether we were allowed to, because I really had no idea at that stage. And I created um, some really unusual things. We we built a um, a fari. We I'd had a one-day school for Māori students only that were gifted um, in a very different way because when I got there, there were the only students who were in the gifted group were Pākehā. Um, and this was way back before um, that was sort of done. Mm. So I was hassled by my fellow principals at that stage. Um, so we did some really interesting things. Mm. Um, then the Ministry of Education kind of spotted me doing some things and I ended up coming going down to Hamilton where I became principal of... Um, the same school my father had been principal at, oh, right. <laughs> which was really interesting. He had passed away, but um, there was only one principal between us. That was Hukunui School in Hamilton. Huh. And that was very, it was very exciting because as I went through all of the books and records, his handwriting there, and I realised he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was, he was alive. I used to, you know, give him a hard time thinking, oh, he was just an old principal, he was an old teacher, you know, he wouldn't know all the latest methodologies, but he did. He was fantastic. <laughs> Oh, so, wow. yeah, it was lovely to sort of see him and feel him through the school. That's a pretty amazing legacy when you think about it, mm -hmm. you know, like that mm -hmm. you were both principals and at the same school. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I was very young, and it was one of the biggest schools in the city at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there was people were shocked that I got a job at that school at that age, um, but I loved it. And, you know, there were still teachers there who had been there when he was principal. 
right. who were quite a lot older than me and probably found it quite challenging to work for me, mm. um, work with me, not for me. And um, we, had, we had some wonderful times. We did some really interesting things. And that's when I really started to understand about how do we get kids to be excited about learning mm. um, and not sticking to a curriculum that was um, pre-organised pre sort of and actually giving kids a choice about what they wanted to learn. And you know, we did it. We started um, electives days, and we had kids going up to the um, the exchange, you know, the exchange market, and doing some really interesting things. And you know, we did that on a Wednesday. And I used to say the school would hop on a Wednesday. We'd, nobody would be away from school. No teachers or kids would be away. It was just a magic day. And then I realised, well, why wouldn't we do that all the time? Right. <laughs> why would? Why wouldn't? This we is what they're enjoying. This is what and they're enjoying from. and learning, and mm. they were having a great time. So I started to really think about, well, how can we do things a little bit differently oh. again? So, mm. always looking for the alternative ways of of thinking. And then the Ministry of Education um, asked if I would work one day a week for them, and do some strategic planning with other schools. So I started to do that. And then um, I ended up starting to work for them full time. Wow. And I'm just picking up on something, you know, you mentioned your mother and how she would always give you the options and you can do this or you can do this or the mm. timing, you know, mm -hmm. you can go to bed, to bed now or 10, 10 minutes. It's up mm. to you. I wonder if there's echoes of that coming oh, through absolutely. what you're talking about mm. as well. Mm. And the other thing I pick up on is you were mentioning in that first position, you were talking about joy, yeah. you know, like that the, the children could enjoy what they're yeah. doing. How are you trying to infuse that? Or what's the importance of the joy or the happiness of studying and, and giving them those options? Well, I think I have a, a real belief that unless you um, are engaged uh, or it's, it's got some meaning, it connects with you, then you can't really learn. Mm -hmm. And we know through brain science that when kids are stressed, unhappy, ch um, not in a good space, their brain actually starts to separate the two lobes start to separate the frontal lobe and the back lobe, mm. and so they can't actually learn. So we're, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that, um, if we make them sit down, shut up and be quiet and actually force them to learn that they're actually going to learn anything. So I think for me it's about how do we make sure learning is enjoyable um, so that and engaging so that kids actually want to learn. Mm. You know, I've done some work with districts in the US where you know, kids hated coming to school and once we start to work with them to en enjoy coming to school, we see huge changes in academic results. Mm. And people just cannot believe it. And they think that, you know, it's fluffy. Well, it's, there's nothing fluffy about this at all. Mm. This is absolutely um, makes a big difference. You still have to teach the actual content. I'm not saying don't do that, but do it in a way that actually connects to kids. Mm. And then the other part is, is that my middle name is Joy. Hmm. Now, I was absolutely embarrassed about that as a kid. You know, it was everyone used to sing joy to the world and all that <laughs> stuff, and I used to hate it. Um, but now it's like, now I understand why my mother named me that. Oh, that's, like, that's really special. It is. It actually yeah. is. And I think, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, names do mean a lot and words mean a lot. And yeah. I think that um, sometimes I think that's what my role is, is to help bring joy back to education. Mm. Um, because it doesn't have to be ugly and boring and horrible. It can be a lot of fun learning. Yeah. Mm. It's a complete aside, but my great-grandparents had three children, and then they had a fourth child, and they named her Joy because they saw that this little baby was bringing so much joy to their family. Yeah. And she, through her whole life, she, she passed away now decades ago, mm. but she always had this 
um, you know, she would come in the room and yeah. here's joy. And it, yeah. it was an amazing thing. It's cr- it is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, Ministry of Education, mm-hmm. yeah, what's that like working within the system, if you like? Oh, yeah. Well, I had a lot of people say, you're going to the dark side. You know, <laughs> you're moving to the dark side. Why are you doing that? But I think, you know, for me, it was, a, it was the most incredible experience because you start to understand, you know, what a system actually is and what it can do and what it can't do. Mm. So I started off working in the Bay of Plenty region, then I was in the national system, and then I you know, looked after the um, bottom half of the South, uh, North Island. Then I, was, um, I had some major roles, uh, very senior roles in the Ministry of Education. And I look back on my time in the Ministry of Education and I think you know, if I went back again now, which I probably don't think I would do, um, but I think it gave me a huge picture of what it means to be a public servant. And you don't have a choice a lot of the time about what you're doing because you're implementing the government policy of the day. Mm. And so you're giving advice to the government and about what is good educational practice and they can take it or not. And that's your role is then to implement what they tell you then to do next. Mm. And that's challenging when you have a very strong view of what education needs to be. So I think by the time I left the ministry, I had lost my voice. Mm. So it took me a couple of years to recover. Mm. So I think it was a challenging role, but it also gave me huge insight to recognize that we are the system. Mm. Humans are the system. And I talk a lot about the concrete block that we put on the table between humans and say, it's the system, it's the system. Whereas now I talk about, well, what is the system and who is the system? And often it's a legacy of people who have been before us and we have to unpick that and crack at it mm. and I look for the little tugboat that will turn the system around on the spot mm. and that's you know so the time that I spent in the ministry was invaluable it was the hardest years of my life and I, I think anybody who goes and works inside a big system like that I admire because their lives are challenged mm. from outside the system, from inside the system, from politicians, from from every angle. I know that eventually you ended up in America. Was mm-hmm. that was that coming up soon or how did that happen? Yeah, I stayed stayed in the ministry for seven years and then um, I was I went over to Sweden to the International Congress of Schooling Improvement and on the way I stopped in Seattle to visit with one of my sisters who lived there. And I happened to run into my now husband. And so we fell in love and we decided at that time, we sort of dated a long distance, mm. and um, we decided at that stage which one of us should move countries. <laughs> and yep. so he won because he had two teenage boys, one who's just starting university and one was still at high school. Right. And so I was getting tired of being in the ministry and being battered um, from every angle inside, outside, all the way around. And um, so we made the choice for me to leave and go to the US. And so I went and moved to Seattle and um, that was that was the, the obvious choice for us for, for life decisions. Mm. Very challenging decision for me, mm. um, but I think it was timely. Mm. And I think, you know, you look back now and I think, thank goodness I did, because <laughs> cha- it changed my world, it changed the life for me and, yeah. and all the things I could do from that were quite incredible. So I think everything happens for a reason. At the time you might think, oh gosh, I don't want to do that or, you know. So at one stage um, I was on a trip over there and he just said to me, why don't you just leave your bags here and just go home, sell your house and get over here. So 
that was a decision and we did it. Wow, that's great. Mm. It's an amazing to hearing your life story. That's why I love doing the podcast because I'm able to listen from childhood on. Mm. And even in your story, there are these loops or, mm -hmm. you know, echoes mm -hmm. of things. You know, your father, he was the principal of the same school that mm -hmm. you became the principal of. And here you had studied in high school mm -hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. I know. And then here you are going back to the Pacific yeah. Northwest. It's an amazing I know. Thing. We sort of joke about it and say, I wonder if we saw each other when we were in high school or, you know, we walked past each other when we were meant to meet. And we just, you know, it's sort of, you, you sort of, there's too many coincidences that, um, that have happened. Mm. And, you know, I feel it's a very natural place for me to be in Seattle. It just feels like I've got two homes mm. here. Otatahi and Seattle. Yeah. I feel just as comfortable in both places. Yeah. Well, they're both beautiful cities. That's, they are, that's for yeah. sure. Mm. And in terms of leaving New Zealand, because you'd established a reputation here, mm -hmm. people knew who you were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you'd probably yep, yep. written multiple reports, and people oh, yeah. were taking a, account of who you are. Mm -hmm. You arrive in America where mm -hmm. there's hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> how yep. did you find that transition? And then how did you find your feet in terms uh, of what you were doing? It was it was scary. It was really scary because, um, I mean, people knew who I was here. I had a, as you say, I had a reputation and I could walk into a school and most people knew my name and seen it on a report. Mm. I got to America and nobody knew who I was. Yeah. And I was, I had to, I almost, I felt like I was non-existent. And I had to reinvent myself because I used to have this reputation um, and I didn't have one there. Mm. So nobody knew who I was. I was lonely. I had to have so many coffees with people. I just drank so much coffee I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to get started. And my, my, um, my husband, he said, and, and like I first of all applied for a couple of jobs as superintendent thinking that that's what I might do. And he said to me, what do you think you're doing? That's crazy. Why don't you start your own business? And so, and he'd been a four-time startup um, entrepreneur, and so he said, "I'll help you." And so he said, "So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go." And so I did, and that's the beginning of the learner first. Wow! And well, tell us about that journey then. <laughs> well, that was that was very scary for me because I, uh, as a public servant, my my ethos was completely opposite from from what I what I thought mm. a, a entrepreneur was. Not quite. It doesn't have to be that way. And. Um, and so I started and I, I had to find some superintendents who would be willing to work with me because it's a very different education system over there. And I had to find some brave ones because, of course, the way we educate here was very different from in the U.S. They have a very standardized education system, whereas we don't. And um, I had to have a lot of meetings to actually get people to understand, firstly, my accent. <laughs> Secondly, that I wasn't, um, didn't have three heads and wasn't talking some strange, strange, you know, way of educating and get them to have a go working with us. And I started off doing that, and that worked out really well. So I started to get some evidence and data behind me to show that actually what what, what we could do could work in the U.S. as well. Mm. Because in the U.S. it doesn't matter whether you've been successful in another country or not. You have to show it works in the U.S. Mm. So I, it started off slowly. And the other thing is, is that I didn't think I was very good at business because I put people, planet, before prosperity. And so it took me what I thought was a long time to build up my companies because I put those things first, which you know is a very, very Māori way of being. And um, in the long run, it's worked out. But to start with, it took a long time. And so it was very frustrating for somebody like me who wants it done yesterday. 
Um, and then I um, ran into another couple of people who were working globally, and we set up a project called um, New Pedagogies for Deep Learning, and we started working with about seven different countries, and we had 100 schools in each country. Mm. And we had some schools here in Aotearoa, New Zealand too, and um, that gave another huge kind of global reach, and that was really successful, and I wrote the tools and the, um, led, the de- led the design of those, and um, was the lead writer of those, and that that was really another huge jump start for me as well. Mm. Um, so I kept doing that sort of 50% of the time, and then I kept building the learner first up 50% of the time, and had some really big contracts in the US that really um, got me going and got enough enough sort of action behind me. Mm. And um, it helped that I was in Seattle because, and, and that my husband Andrew was working at a school where Bill Gates' child went to. So I had access to some very powerful people who would back me, um, and that was that was also very helpful. Mm. Mm. It's interesting we talk about entrepreneurship. I think people have a box that they think, uh-huh. what does an entrepreneur look like? Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, it's, it's those people over there, yeah. whether it's creating a Facebook or a, mm-hmm. creating a, a Bill Gates, a Microsoft or something, but actually, what you've described as your life and the approach that you've taken to education, there's strong elements of entrepreneurship there because you're innovating, you're Mm -hmm. coming up with new Mm -hmm. ways of teaching children in a fun, joyful way, Mm -hmm. you know, which isn't maybe what the curriculum had. So there were elements there, wasn't there? It's just kind of thinking about them in a different way. It it, it is, and and I I had a bias. And, and the other thing, too, as a public servant, we were not allowed to interact mm. too much with entrepreneurs because of any bias. New Zealand is one of the least corrupt countries in the world. And so we don't have, we don't, we just naturally, uh, we separate the two because if I was to be spending time with a lot of entrepreneurs, then I might be seen to be being corrupted mm, by sure. that. Sure, yeah. And so in the US, it's quite different because your, your you know, entrepreneurs are leading the way. Mm. And public servants kind of are coming behind, whereas here, public servants are held in high esteem for making good decisions that are not being influenced by mm. entrepreneurs, mm. which is quite the opposite. Yeah. It's, again, back to our earlier conversation about the silos of thought that exactly. people don't interact yep. or bounce off each other and yeah. things. Yeah. Whereas so I really want to help bring those two together because when I got to America, I was very unhappy that we hadn't had access to entrepreneurs because that would have actually accelerated my learning and the kids' learning. Mm. I was like, man, if we could bring all of these people together, we would have such a great opportunity that would accelerate what Aotearoa New Zealand could do because there's some amazing entrepreneurs in our country that could do some great stuff with education and that's why I'm, that's what I'm doing now mm. is bringing all of that together and it's just fantastic <laughs> you know I love it I love it yeah yeah you're able mm. to integrate yeah. all of the yeah. well, what you said before nothing is ever wasted so yeah. you can integrate things in mm. so talk us through like we're here in Otatahi Christchurch now mm. so you at some point thought it's time to come back mm-hmm. I think you'd mentioned your mother mm-hmm. was it her health that was prompting that or what what led that? yeah I think um, I got exceedingly busy in the US and um, you know the year before I came home I went on 80 flights you know 80 trips around the world I I, I became a global speaker and uh, attended a lot of things and then mum had been living in a home and I really hated that mm. that was not my way of being and I didn't I couldn't cope with that and I knew she was getting closest closer to her time on mm. earth going and my relationship with her was exceedingly close and 
Um, the time before I left, until I did move home, she just said to me, Jojo, I hate you seeing me in this room. And that just was like a knife in my heart. Mm. So I thought, I've got to do something. So COVID hit, perfect timing to come home. So we decided that rather than sit in a in our in our condo in the US, mm. come home. So we did. And um, so we came home, bought a beautiful home, and I wanted her to have the most special place in the world. So we ended up buying a place out at um, Clarkville and we treated her with whatever she wanted for the for her last year of life and gave her whatever she needed, wanted and spoiled her rotten <laughs> and just loved her. And and as my husband and I say, it was the richest time of our lives. Mm. You know, we had she she was sort of halfway through the dementia stages, but when she you know, in the daytime she had a lot of clarity and we just had such fun. Aww. And I think that, you know, as a as grown up women together, we had we just loved loved each other and had so much so many stories to tell each other. And as I said, she did a lot of the inner work for me, and helped me progress externally. So she was very spiritual, helped me a lot, and you know I'll hold that forever. Mm. That that last year that you spent with her, you were able to be with her so much, yep. and you know because you'd left home relatively young. Yeah. <laughs> it had been a while since you'd been in the same yeah. presence. Or what did that do for you that year of being close to her when she was able to yeah. talk with you? It just it just reminded me of um, it, I got to know her again as an adult. Even though I kind of knew her as an adult, it was mm. just it was just she told me stories of our family, our Fano. She, you know, because I think your memories when you do have a little bit of dementia go back to the younger days. So I heard lots of stories of her younger days. Um, she gave me a lot of gifts um, of of our stories, of our history, of our of our lives. She gave me um, lots of just I think just time time sitting together, holding hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get better than that, holding your mum's hand. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was just just touching each other, having that physical connection, looking at each other, looking at the grass outside, watching the earth go by, you know, the world go by. It was just beautiful. Mm. I think that was, it was just peaceful, Mm. giving giving each other a bit of peace. I think the deepest relationships that we can have as humans is where you're sitting in the same room as someone, Mm -hmm. present, Mm -hmm. and not talking. Yep and simply mm-hmm. being together. Because mm-hmm. so often, particularly yeah. in Western culture, it's all about what's happening next, you know, and, and did you see the TV show last yeah. night and what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah. And just being mm. and, you know, maybe yeah. watching the sun or yeah. watching the bird yeah. eating or whatever. It like, is. There's something yeah. deep there, isn't there? Yeah, it's beautiful. And I used to cook her a meal every night and say, you know, give her whatever she wanted mm. every night. And whatever she chose, I would make it for her. And every night she wanted ice cream for dessert <laughs> and she got it you know and the rule in our house was that whatever she whatever our mother wanted she got wow whoever came in the door that was she was priority for us it yeah. was just whatever she needed she got yeah. and it was just like it was an honor you know i was honored to be able to do that and so was my and so was my husband andrew he just he he talks about that as one of the best things he's ever done too so yeah. it's like you know i could only ever encourage anybody who has an elderly parent to spend time with them because mm. time is Time is everything. Mm. Yeah, I notice that more and more, even with my parents, when I'm with them, they live in a different country, in Hawaii, actually. Um, And just going and spending a week with them or or two weeks Mm. and just being, you know, you don't don't even have to say anything because, Mm. you know, you can just 
enjoy each other. Yeah. It's very special. It's very special. Yeah. 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 While you've been back in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I know you have also been busy. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the charity that you helped mm -hmm. to set up? Yes. Um, one of the things is that is um, I wanted to I wanted to really think about how do we how do we connect um, indigenous knowledge and um, Papatuanuku together with education. And I know that I've been in whole system change in education for all of my life, and I know it's really hard to do. But part of what I do in education is to make things relevant. And I know that if we look at um, the climate crisis that we're in, I kind of had this sort of idea that if we, if we look at trying to support the Papatuanuku, then we could maybe change education at the same time. So we got together with a group of um, EHF Edmontary Fellows and thought if we pull our knowledge together we might be able to look at doing things through Indigenous knowledge to try and work on climate change and or su supporting our Papatuanuku and at the same time simultaneously change how we educate our kids. Mm -hmm. So we thought we'll try that as a different way of doing as a different way of educating, and I, I worked with um, one of the one of our EHF fellows, um, Sarah, and she, she's the CEO, and we had a joint CEO, um, Huia, who is Maori, and the board is um, predominantly Maori as well, and we're coming from a very Maori lens, uh, Mataranga Maori lens, so that we actually are honouring the treaty, and we're looking at it from a very different way of being. So we're choosing projects that support um, how we want the earth to be mm -hmm. and how we want to educate. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at it, I'm working at the system level and this particular trust is really looking at it from an indigenous lens mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that it will teach me and teach us all how to be. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Mm. Um, I think it's it's been really interesting watching that journey as well because I know Sarah Grant quite well mm. and just seeing her getting involved with what you're doing and then I got the chance to help write the trust deed mm. which was the you know the founding document for the charity mm. and I know there's other Edmund Hillary fellows out there who've mm -hmm. contributed in yeah. various ways so mm. um, I've said to Rosalie Nelson from EHF like mm. this is a pretty good example of a whole bunch of people combining and creating something new it's mm. really special. Mm. It is, and I, I just assume that's what we should be doing. Mm. I just figure out the figure that the more people who work together in a community who want similar things and who want to change the world and who want to incubate really good ideas here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and then take them globally, we have to get more people involved. Mm. And I think then people can see the kinds of things that we can do. And, um, you know, it's a very, it's a humbling experience to work with so many people who actually do have a good heart and want to make a difference for our tamariki, rangatahi and our whānau. Mm. And I think that together we are really starting to break some barriers. Mm. And then what I want to do with that is then take that back to the system levels of education that I work with in different countries, including our own country, and say, hey, we've got some evidence here that's starting to, show, is to say, how about we look at this from a very different lens? Mm. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put a link to the charity so yep. that people can click and find out more if they're interested. I would love that. And your future plans, um, yeah, where, where are we up to and what's yeah. happening for you? Well now I have Mokopuna 
Um, he lives in the United States in Seattle, so we're going to be splitting our time between Seattle and Otetahi. And um, so after this, we'll be heading to um, Seattle for a few months and seeing how it goes. And we'll probably end up having a, a base here and Seattle. Mm. Um, I can't live without spending time with with um, our mokopuna, and I think that's it's the same reason why we came home to be with our mother. Mm. Was that um, we need to be with the people who mean the most to us, and um, you know I will still do carry on the projects that I've started here, and we'll continue with projects that I've got in in US. I have a company in the US and one in Australia and one here, all under the banner of the Learner First, and so we have teams of people working across those three countries. I intend to expand those even further. Um, we're starting to get a lot of traction with the work that we're doing, and um, we intend to grow those. And so I do a little bit of time in each country, and but I see that Aotearoa and the US are, are both my home. Mm. That's wonderful, and it's kind of echoes throughout this conversation of home family and the importance because I, I agree ultimately home is often where the people that's who right. matter the most are that's right that's how i that's how i yeah. you know ultimately think about yeah. my children where are my parents yeah. where's my wife yeah, yeah. all of yeah. these things yeah. yeah well it's great to talk with you and what we'll do is maybe in a couple of years we can have another interview mm. and we can work out okay yeah. where did things go next yeah. um because i agree uh, just to that sentiment of if you can learn and do things well here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, yeah. you can actually be a model for so many different principles that might not be as strong in mm. other places. Mm. And Mataranga Māori is definitely one where mm. there's a lot of wisdom there that, that we can learn from mm. um, and shape mm. the way that we do things. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. And I mean, there's a lot of interest in the world around how do we um, think differently about education. Mm. My most recent keynote was at the um, uh, principals conference in the United States with, with all of the principals from all over the country. Mm -hmm. And they're very interested in the work that we're doing. And it's, it's really literally based on the work I've done here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So yeah. it's sort of like we can be proud of that. Yeah. But it's also, um, it's also with a flavour of, you know, it can't not be Indigenous because that's who I am. Mm -hmm. Well, I've loved talking with you, hearing mm. your background, your childhood, realizing at 14 that there was a reason that you felt a little bit different, mm -hmm. and, and also hearing a bit about your mother. I really mm. enjoyed, she mm. sounded like an amazing woman, and mm. um, had clearly had a profound influence on mm. what you've gone on to, to do. Um, but also I loved hearing about the, the innovation that you were bringing and the word joy, because <laughs> mm -hmm. I think we don't use that word enough, mm. bringing joy to education and actually helping students to enjoy what they're doing rather than feeling like it's a burden or I have to do it. Mm. So um, thank you so much for giving some of your time and coming and sharing with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been awesome. Thank you, Stephen. And um, I look forward to seeing you in about three years and having the same conversation with a little bit of an update. All right, we'll put it in the diary. Yeah, great. <laughs> Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joanne. For me, there was a bunch of highlights, and I really enjoyed hearing her life story and about what's shaped her both in her early childhood and then later on. And I loved hearing about the echoes in her life, like how her father had been a principal and then she became the principal there, and how she'd gone as an exchange student to America and then went back again. And I really enjoyed her reflections about caring for her mother as well. 
If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? And there's links to everything that we talked about in the show notes as well. Until next time.